Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans to chapter 2. We'll continue in our study with verses 12 through 26. Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And here as we come to chapter 2 to verses 12 through 16, we continue in what has been called Paul's great discourse on the doctrine of sin. And here let me remind you that Paul is not simply teaching on sin for the sake of theological discourse, but this portion of his letter to the church in Rome is a part of his greater argument for the free offer of the gospel. And the thinking goes like this. A man must first be convinced that he is a sinner in need of salvation or he will never consider the free offer of a Savior from sin and its punishment. And so here as we go into Romans chapter 2 from verses 12 through 16, the apostle specifically puts his finger on the extent of the judgment of God and also the goodness of the judgment of the law of God in the lives of both Gentiles and Jewish people alike. And so let's read the word of God, Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. O Lord, for the way in which you search our hearts and our minds through their testimony. Father in heaven, we pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would be in the midst of your people. O Lord, that you would cast light upon the scriptures. That you would give us understanding. O Lord, that we would have hearts to receive your word. That Lord, we would be a people brought to obedience, that, Lord, we might do what your law commands. O Father in heaven, help us to see our need for Jesus. O Lord, help us to cry out for him. O Lord, and to receive afresh the wonder of his gospel and the outpouring of his blood by faith. O Father in heaven, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In chapter 1, Paul spoke about the sin of the Gentile world, primarily. And Gentiles are all people in any place of any nation or any tongue that are not Jewish people. 
It will have been marked out and distinguished by the reception of the word and also the promises and the covenant of God. And then in chapter 2, he transitions. And his attention goes specifically to Jewish people, to religious people, to the people that the Lord has singled out by his word and by his promises, by the giving of his law, which is nothing more, nothing less than the revelation of his own heart, that which pleases him concerning our relationship to him and our relationship to other men, the two tables of the law. I do want to encourage you and remind you that this is a letter to Christians. Paul is writing to a church that is blended, as it were, culturally. There are Gentilic Christians of Roman or Greek or other background, and then there are Jewish Christians within the church, and history tells us that there was often such division among them that even the civil magistrate, the ruler of Rome, kicked the Jewish Christians out for a time because the fighting was so fierce. And so Paul writes to a church that simply needs a clear view of the gospel of Jesus, that both Gentile and Jew are accountable to God and are guilty apart from the mercy of Jesus. And so they need him and the benefit of the gospel. Three things I want us to consider from our passage this morning are firstly, the internal law. The internal law. Verse 12, 14, and 15. Secondly, the written law. Verse 12 and 13, the written law. And then in verse 16, the certainty of divine judgment. The certainty of divine judgment. So as we come to this section of the book of Romans, the apostle makes distinctions. As I mentioned a moment ago, most of chapter 1 has exclusive reference to Gentile people. And then in chapter 2, there is specific reference to Jewish people. And so Paul makes theological distinctions. And here in the passage of Scripture, he has to deal with the theological distinction of people who have received the law and heard the revealed moral law of God and then people who are ignorant of it. It makes quite a lot of good sense, really, because people, they may ask the question, and let me just simply say, they absolutely have. And this is the question. How can God judge people by a standard that they have never heard of? How can God judge people by a standard that they have never heard of? Because you see, people of their own mind and of their own sense think it's not fair. How can you hold it against them if they were ignorant? The man on the island has never heard of Jesus, has never heard of the God of the Bible. How can he be held accountable to its commands? That seems rational enough. That seems fair enough. I think in the society in which we live, uh, most people would generally want to subscribe to an extension of grace. If there's some ignorance of the law, even though the law does stand, that people at least are instructed or given a first warning so that they can then obey a law 
that now they've been made aware of. And Paul looks directly at it. Because, well, after all, what is the great emphasis here? It's that God shows no partiality, no reference to persons. Verse 11. This is the judgment of God, a God of heaven, a God who stands over all things. A sovereign God who's not unique to one people group or to one nation or to one landmass, but rather a God of all the earth, of all creation. The Almighty God. The only God that there is and the God who has promised to bring judgment on all his creatures according to all their thoughts, words, and actions. And even affections. And so in verse 12, Paul answers the question. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Do you hear that? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Paul makes an absolute statement. Even if people don't know the law, they still sin. And that sin still bears within it the penalty that sin brings. And that penalty is death. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And so here's something that we need to have in our heads and in our hearts this morning to understand. People do not need the law in its written form to know how to sin. People do not need the law in written form to know how to sin. As a parent, I'm quite assured of this. An infant with no obvious rational capacity, though beautiful and cute, still can prove to me that there's a selfish, sinful heart deep within. As a missionary over the years, having served in places that are quite remote, though places that I was simply by far not the first missionary to ever go to, But you don't have to explain what sin is. Serving in Nepal years ago as a bulletproof 19-year-old missionary. I could go into villages. People never heard of Jesus. Or if they had, they really didn't know anything about him. They just thought maybe he's another god in the great pantheon of gods in the world. Right? But, But really, nothing truly about him. And if we would speak to people about sin, they may not understand the word sin, but as soon as you begin to describe sin as anything that we do against God or anything that harms our fellow men, anything that disturbs society that is against the word of God or the delights of God, people generally understand it. You'd ask somebody, is it bad to murder somebody? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course it's bad to murder somebody. Is it bad to have someone else's wife or someone else's husband? Of course it's a bad thing. Uh, Is it bad to lie? Of course it's a bad thing to lie. People knew how to sin apart from any testimony of the Bible. People don't need the law written 
to know how to sin. In verse 12, Paul insists, it's almost a, it's almost a thing taken for granted for all who have sinned. The assumption is people do sin even apart from the law. In every ounce, in every place in human society where a person can be found, if there is a human being, then according to the fall, there is a fallen heart without reference to what they have heard. And it's as if Paul cites death as proof of this. Do you know that we're not made to die? You're not designed for it at all. If we are made in the image and after the likeness of God, then we are made in the image and after the likeness of a God who is eternal, who is immortal, who is infinite. We're not to be a people that die. That's not the design. That's that's not how we're made. Death is the wages of sin. Romans chapter 6, 23. When sin began in the garden, death began as its consequence. Man was not going to die until he sinned. And death is the punishment for sin. It's as simple as that. It's as if Paul is saying... You see, everybody on the planet, whether they know the law or not, they die. They're accountable by their sin to the effects of that sin, which is death. And now, if I may, if we look forward just a little bit to verse 14, Paul continues regarding the thought of the internal law. The internal law. Let's read verse 14 and also 15 together in sequence. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so Paul turns and puts his attention directly on the heart of man, the creature. This is on the evidences of the simple knowledge of right and wrong in the mind and in the heart of mankind. And so the thing that I want you to hear with ears this morning for verse 14 is that knowledge of right and wrong are natural to mankind. Knowledge of right and wrong are natural to mankind. Again, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, what's he speaking of? He's referring to the revealed moral law of God. Where do we find that? We find that in the Ten Commandments of the Lord. The first four regarding our responsibility to God. And the latter five through ten, the latter six regard our responsibility to our fellow man. And Paul is saying, for even whenever the Gentiles don't have that moral law, they don't have the codification of the delights of the heart of God. 
and also the forbidding nature of all of his warnings that yet, whenever they don't even have it, but still do by nature what the law requires, that they are a law to themselves. Do you hear what he's saying? That there remains, even in fallen man, a sense of right and wrong. Deep in the heart, deep in the mind, still in the man, even though he's fallen. Even though the heart of man, because of the fall, is dead. It's like a stone, the scriptures say. It does not submit to God's will, nor can it do so, Paul will later say in the book of Romans. That there is still a knowledge of right and wrong. Whenever John Murray speaks about this sense of right and wrong, he uses a word that I want to express to you that for Germans, international, and English speakers alike, this will be a little foreign to you. He says that these things are known by mankind, or the moral, the morally obvious things of life are natural because they are divinely engendered. Murray says they are divinely engendered. That the way in which God made us and gave us genes, as it were. His design. As we're still image bearers, we retain a sense of the things that please Him and the things that He hates. Now there's a thing to say, isn't there? That even if our body or our flesh or our heart has a sense of it this is still a fallen body and fallen flesh and what do we do regarding the testimony of the heart and this sense that Paul is giving voice to what what does the sinful man do of course you know we silence it in our sin don't we very often we gag the mouth of the heart and will not let it speak But Paul says it's not only the testimony of the heart that becomes a law, even for the man that doesn't know the revealed will of God, but that his conscience, not just the heart, but the conscience, he has two testimonies, right? What is the conscience? Well, it's the witness of the inner part of man or the soul's complaint against you. You ever feel guilty? It's because of the conscience. You ever ask yourself when you've been wronged or accused of wrong, did I really do it? And you feel, I think I'm right in this circumstance. It's the conscience's testimony. Another testimony. I mean, the conscience has fallen, man has fallen. The conscience is often silenced. Paul talks about the effect of sin, persistent sin, that we don't put to death. What does it do to the conscience? It sears. It burns. It makes insensitive the conscience of man. Like a cauterized wound. Like if someone was bleeding, you would burn the wound to stop the bleeding, to stop the pain, to effectively kill the flesh. That can happen to the conscience. 
So that whenever a person, whenever they are sinning and pursuing sin, if they want to go and do it, what do they do? They silence the sin. They live in a culture that says that that sin isn't sin. And over time, their mind, their heart, and their conscience become convinced so that the mouth is shut. Even the testimony of the conscience is silent. But Paul says, it still remains. And it testifies. And it submits our own souls to the judgment of ourselves. Are you doing what is right and according to God? Are you not? Scarcely any culture on the earth will struggle over the command to honor your father and your mother. No matter how pagan. No matter how Gentile. Almost no culture on the earth would argue or think for a second that stealing is virtuous or that murder is a good thing or that adultery is to be preferred. Even in cultures where a sexual revolution has happened in total, even the grotesque aberration, all of the wrongs, all of the sins, all of the departure of the ancient Roman and the Greek world, even then, where it was completely legal, people still revolted and rebelled against sexually immoral leaders and persons within society. No one thinks that coveting is a good thing culturally. There's not a place on the world to be found where in a court of law it is thought a good thing to bear false witness, an acceptable thing. Now people may do a different thing. A culture may shrug their shoulders and be, well, flippant or dismissive about these things. They may ignore them, they may press them down, but nonetheless there is the simple testimony that you don't generally have to convince people of much of the law of God. People have a sense because the Lord has placed it upon the heart of his creatures. In verse 15, Paul has another thing that he wants to convince us of, and it's this, that the acts even of people who don't have access, the works, the deeds that a man would do or a woman would do or a person would do that accord with the law of God, that those acts that are good and the sense that we have to do them, whether believer or unbeliever, whether Gentile or Jew, that they show forth that God has made us to be moral creatures, to have hearts that are sensitive to morality, to right, to wrong. It becomes a law to them. So what's the big thing? What do I want you to take away from this first section? It's this. Whenever we consider sin and judgment and the act of sin amongst people in humanity, the problem isn't ignorance of the law of God. The problem is an ignorance of right and wrong. 
The problem isn't a confusion of evil and good, of what pleases God and what God hates, both Jew and Gentile alike. The problem is that while we do know that there is a God and that we do know what is right and wrong, that even still we choose to do wrong and to sin and offend the God who made us to harm ourselves and to harm other people. Did you hear what I said? It's not that man is ignorant of sin and so he can't be judged by God, but rather that man does know right and wrong. And even if he's ignorant of the scriptures, he still willfully, willfully offends the Lord by his actions, by his thoughts, by his words. And that's where Paul is saying, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. The standard of the judgment of even Gentile people who don't know anything of the Bible or the faith of Jesus Christ is simply the things that their hearts are already convinced of by the mark of the hand of their creator. They will still answer for what they do without exception. God shows no partiality. Secondly, as we progress in the passage, we consider the written law. The written law in verse 12 and verse 13. And so Paul here looks directly at the Jewish community or maybe the Jewish Christians within the church that are asking the question or maybe even justifying themselves as people who have received the law. Because in the second part of verse 12, he says, all who have sinned under the law will be what? They will be judged by the law. Do you know that he doesn't say they will be put to death according to the law? He doesn't say they will be condemned according to the law, but rather they will be judged. It is a standard of judgment. They'll be held accountable to it. They're accountable to the things that the Lord has commanded them to do and accountable to the things he's forbidden us ever to do. It's as simple as that. And whenever he speaks to the Jewish people, he goes on and in verse 13 he says, and this is preaching and pastoral application, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And I want to say, before your mind goes to a place that is not intended to to be taken to, that this passage does not teach some kind of works-based justification. Not at all. In fact, this is a negative impact. He's actually preaching to the conviction of the hearts of his hearers or his readers. He's saying to them this. Yes, you think you're right. You think you're made right with God. That you're safe because you're the people of Israel who have heard the law and read the law and spoke the law and memorized the law. 
Your whole life, you've attended synagogue. And you've done all the acts of religion, all the externals. But how about the obedience of the heart? You see, he holds him to a standard of the heart's religion and the heart's reception of the law of God. And he simply says this. It's not the ones who simply receive it, who simply hear it or are called by it, but rather the people who have it in the heart and whose deeds are radically changed. People who are brought into a life of heartfelt obedience to do the things the law commands. That's an issue, isn't it? Because the Jewish Christians wanted to say, we're the people of the covenant, the people of circumcision. We're the people of the law. I had my bar mitzvah, my bet mitzvah, all of these different things. I wrote the word of the Lord on the doorpost of my house. Had it on my arm, strapped in a small box or on my forehead in a phylactery. I wore the prayer shawl. Observe the high holy days. Paul simply wants to say, but what about the heart? God is not partial just because you received it if you didn't keep it. It's not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Where's the heart? Where's the heart, Jewish person? Where's the heart, Jewish Christian? Why is he saying these sort of things? Because Paul's goal is to show the sinner his sin, his desperate state that he would simply desire the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. If you press a man, whether he's a Gentile, whether he's Jewish, whether he's tried to keep the law in its letter, all the way to the heart, all the way to the heart, every person would have to simply say, I don't think that I've kept it. I don't think that I've kept it. Now, where does this meet you, Christian? Maybe you've been a Christian as long as you can remember. Maybe your testimony is that you can't recall a day where you didn't know that Jesus was Lord and Savior. You've been in church services for as long as you can remember. It's the earliest thing that marked your life. You're baptized as an infant or even by profession of faith. You attend every Lord's Day. You read your Bible every day. You share the gospel. You do all the works demanded, but what about the heart? What about the heart? Is the gospel just a thing on your lips or is it a thing that dominates the mind and dominates the heart? Are you a Christian in the deeds of religion or in the devotion of a converted heart that simply cries out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner? You see, that's Paul's point. That's what he wants you to see. Your need for Christ, just like the ancient Jew, just like the ancient Jewish Christian, 
in Rome. You can know the law, you can know the gospel, you can have all the externals of religion, but if that doesn't bring you to a heartfelt obedience to God and faith in Jesus Christ, there is no reality or hope at all in your spiritual life. And so Paul transitions once more to the certainty of the day of judgment, verse 16. There's some debate amongst Bible scholars whenever you look at this verse in the original language. Um, it's hard to know. Is there intended to be a parenthesis or a period at the end of verse 15? Or does it just go on? Verse 15 in the same sentence with 16. I'm not entirely certain that either view changes the full weight of verse 16. After all, in verse 15, he's talking about the conscience bearing witness and the conflicting thoughts of the Gentile accusing or excusing the person when, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the thoughts, the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What's he teaching? It's the presumption that there is a day, that day, that has a date on a calendar hidden in the wisdom and the will of God that has a specific time, a second and a minute where it will occur. That there is a day that is coming, there is a day that is coming when God will judge the secrets of men according to the gospel by Jesus Christ. What are you intended to hear? It's this. You will face your God specifically. You will have an interview with the King of Heaven and His eye will not be blind. It pierces clouds, it pierces earth, but in that day you will be before his face and it will pierce your breast and review the whole of your heart. And all the secrets, the things that you keep from me and you keep from other people and even you keep from yourself, the things that are buried way down deep, the Lord will behold them. As clear as day, brought to absolute light, and he will judge you. But do you see how he will judge you? He will judge you according to, as Paul says, my gospel. It's so near. It's so dear to Paul. It's at the very heart of who he is. The gospel of Jesus. It's not just the gospel according to Paul, but rather the gospel of Jesus that he's received, that he binds all his life and his hope against death on. What does this mean? It means that every person will meet the Lord. Every person will be judged. Every person's works will be laid bare. Both believers and unbelievers alike, Gentiles and Jews, without exception, without partiality, the Lord will see it all. But it will be according to the gospel and not according to the law. What does that mean? Well, it means 
that the Lord will view all of our sins and he will call them as they are, that they deserve the punishment of death. And then the simple question and the review will be had, did you receive Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in the one who will bear the punishment of your sin that your sin deserves? Did you put your faith in him? Did you know him? Did you love him? And have you received the forgiveness of sins that comes through his atonement? A thing that every Christian should understand is that there is a day of judgment and the sins of every Christian will have been punished in the body of Jesus that hung upon a tree. That the death that we deserve according to our sins, he took in his body of flesh and took it all the way to death and put it to death for us. He's saying every person is going to be judged not according simply to the law and punished according to it, but rather, did you know Christ? Did you receive him or did you not? Did you answer the gospel's call to faithful obedience to proclaim him as Lord and Savior? Or did you not? And for the Christian, what will there be? There will be a simple declaration for all who have faith in Jesus. And it will be this. My righteous son. My righteous daughter. You are holy unto the Lord because the Lamb was slain. Come near to me. And for any who don't know Him, what did the Lord, our Savior, say Himself? There will be punishment. There will be agony. A place of fire. Biting and gnashing of teeth. Judgment. And so I ask you this morning. Have you professed Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you? It's very simple. It's not complex. It's not even a thing that you have to do in perfection, but rather have you professed Jesus as Lord and simply said, I need a Savior. I want Jesus to be my Savior. I want my Lord. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I have no hope but in Him. Even in weak faith or strong faith, simple faith is faith enough in Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that day of judgment? Let us pray together. Oh Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for the free offer of the gospel. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your law that reveals our sins and our need for a Savior. Oh Lord, that reveals your righteousness, your hatred of sin that ought to cause us to stop, to repent, to turn to turn away from sin, to turn to you, to run to you with a plea for forgiveness. 
with a loud profession of faith in your Son. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to love Christ and to receive him as Lord and Savior. O Lord, to hear the testimony of the day of judgment without fear. That even though we are sinners, we have a great Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, who has died and made satisfaction for us. Father, if there are any that don't know him, that haven't received him, I pray that they would receive him right now. That this would be the day appointed, that this second in time, O Lord, that this would be the occasion of their salvation, their faith in Jesus. We pray for that, O Lord. O Heavenly Father, we pray all of these things and lift them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.